You're listening to Deal Talk with 7MA, providing invaluable insight into investment banking and the M&A space through honest conversations with industry thought leaders, business pioneers, and innovators. We'll pull back the curtain and give you the inside scoop on trends in our targeted industries and provide you the tools to better position your company in today's market. Today, we're back with another episode of Deal Talk with 7MA. Our firm has been frequently asked over the past few weeks how utilizing the PPP or Main Street loan programs may impact their business, especially for businesses considering a sale or acquisition in the next four to 24 months. On this episode, one of Seven Miles partners, Andy Johnston, is joined by two guests from Elliott Davis, a leading business solutions firm offering a full spectrum of services in the areas of tax, comprehensive assurance, and consulting services to discuss just that. Andy, welcome to the podcast. Why don't you go ahead and kick us off by introducing your two guests today? Thanks, Ariel. With me today are Ryan Loveless and Josh White. Josh is primary focus area at Elliott Davis is on the financial services industry. He works with a variety of financial institutions on matters such as audits, internal controls, financial reporting. His experience encompasses everything from SEC reporting, IPOs, secondary offerings, as well as FDIC-assisted transactions. So his insight on how financial institutions think about the world is instrumental as we explore this topic. Ryan is joining us for the management consulting division, having previously worked at the Boston Consulting Group. Ryan brings a perspective of helping clients navigate market and customer opportunities. Certainly, this topic applies as companies really think about how to navigate through their capital needs as they pursue growth in this post-COVID-19 environment that we find ourselves in. So Josh and Ryan, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Great. Hey, so my first point of conversation here, I'd like to start with you, Josh. So as we think about the world of lenders and access to capital, you know, oftentimes at Seven Mile, we're engaged to help the company explore capital markets, lending institutions, and other sources of capital as they seek to finance certain opportunities. You know, sometimes that's an acquisition, sometimes it's organic growth, sometimes it's buying out an owner. So there's lots of reasons people might need to tap into capital. And oftentimes we find that even when we're out trying to raise equity or selling a company entirely, many times the investors that want to participate in a transaction are bringing debt along with them. So while they might be a private equity group, certainly debt and debt capital is an important part of the equation. So as we look at the world we find ourselves in now, we're hearing a lot of reports that traditional lenders and private debt funds are nervous and hesitant to loan money. And to address that concern of a lack of potential liquidity in the market, we're watching the federal government roll out a new type of lending program that we've not seen before. So specifically, we're talking about the Main Street Loan Program, MSLP. And I think it's helpful if you wouldn't mind, maybe give the audience a little bit of background on the participants, the players involved from the government, I think for people that never had to worry about how federal government operates within the banking system, this is really probably their first encounter with the various parties. So if you wouldn't mind, maybe help us understand, you know, who are the key players here that are rolling this program out and what is their traditional role in the market? Yeah, sure thing. Thank you, Andy. The Main Street Lending Program, it's really a process of being rolled out. It's a $600 billion program that the Federal Reserve is the one running point on related to this. It is really being stood up from scratch, basically, is the best way to think of it. So that's where I started hearing about this program back early, mid-April. We're still in process of getting a lot of guidance and updating terms on it. But the intent here was to try to say, okay, 
Do we have $600 billion? How do we get that out there specifically? And this will not be the case for everyone, but really looking at the RI is a lot of focus on the middle market and also a focus on some of those bars that may not have been within the scope of the Paycheck Protection Program that a lot of people had heard about that the SBA had rolled out. So that that's really the intent. And I think the way I viewed it is looking back in some of the roles that just the Federal Reserve plays traditionally, one of those typically being the lender of last resort. Now, that's not typically done in such a broad-reaching program like this is. But as you alluded to, Andy, I'm looking at this, and Ryan is as well, of if the Fed is really the lender of last resort, historically, this is likely a program to keep credit flowing, especially in a time where there's just been additional tightening and no one knows exactly what's around the corner. So ultimately, it was with that notion, and it was created via the CARES Act that was the same legislation that created the PPP program, where it is, and that act alludes to the fact that this is really for bars who are having some issues obtaining regular credit elsewhere. So with that, and then also some additional guidance that the Fed has provided via an FAQ, while not explicitly stated, ultimately, we're the belief that the primary purpose of this is trying to keep a lot of these middle market businesses operational and keep their folks employed, especially at a time where they might be in a liquidity pinch given the current economic conditions related to COVID-19. Hey, so one follow up there. So I think maybe the best analogy we have to this is the PPP. We're recording this on May 5th, 2020. The PPP program has been out approximately a month and has generated a lot of headlines, has really kind of demonstrated some of the shortfalls of a hastily crafted program that flows from Congress, is turned over to the Treasury with almost no detail, and then it's up to the Treasury to try to crank out, you know, fairly quickly guidance and then filter that down again to a bank who has to apply their own guidelines and interpretations and then try to communicate that to the borrowers. They're trying to access the program. We've seen, you know, some of the challenges that produces as the Treasury Department ends up changing guidance or rolling out details as questions come back to them without actually stopping the implementation of the program, et cetera. And, and I wonder if you can maybe comment on the difference between that PPP program that was really the Small Business Administration and the Treasury Department, you know, attempting to deploy the capital through banks. And this Main Street Lending Program, which seems to be flowing from the Federal Reserve, you know, for example, should we expect Congress to step in? Is there a chance of a senator or a congressperson coming in and influencing what the Federal Reserve does with this program, you know, by virtue of legislation, or, or do they run through a different governance and policymaking process? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Andy, I think maybe I'll work from the influence part. You never really know what's going to come out of Washington, I mean, at least kind of political influence. I would look at it that, as you mentioned, the PPP program was really facilitated through the SBA and Treasury, those both being part really of the executive branch. So they are going to be more closely tied historically to the president and the administration. Federal Reserve really in its role as the central bank is really viewed historically as an independent entity in the government, which is why probably some of the interesting back and forth between Powell and the president over the past probably 12 months or more. So while I'd say I never really know what's going to come out of Washington, I would think and hope maybe the Federal Reserve's program would probably be a little bit more independent. But 
I think, as you pointed out there, I think you used the term headline. I think both of these will probably have some headline risk, as we've seen with PPP, with some of the larger restaurants, professional sports teams, things like that involved. But as far as kind of the true differences that I see through this is, and I think as you put it, that there was the PPP program was rolled out quickly. And partially the reason it was rolled out quickly, it was part of and really created under this SBA 7A program, which is an existing lending program. Now, the intent there was to put out, now with the second round of it, over $600 billion of trying to get money out to small businesses as quickly as possible. And really the SBA being the smallest agency within the executive branch, looked at what was the best way to get that money out and as quickly as possible. And they looked at it and said, okay, banks, credit unions, non-traditional lenders, are there ways we can utilize their liquidity as well as some from the Federal Reserve and use those really as a conduit to get those funds out? So for those that weren't necessarily involved in the PPP program, the way it worked was typically there was some type of standard application that small business or other qualifying business comes in it all runs through the bank, but the bank is really submitting it to the SBA. The SBA is the one approving, denying. They're making the underwriting decisions. And so really the terms, and I'm sure we'll touch on that in a little bit, the terms of PPP were much more advantageous to the borrowers, really, in, in my mind, due to the fact that the bank is not really taking on credit risk in the traditional sense. I think there'll be some risk they'll take on on the back end with some of this, but not credit risk in the traditional sense. From the Main Street program, or excuse me, I'd also point out for those that weren't involved in PPP and haven't read about it, those to help encourage the banks to go through with this, the loans are 100% government guaranteed so that if the borrower defaults, the government will essentially pick up the loss for the bank. And, and if the borrower meets certain qualifications, the loan will be forgiven. So, so that's where if you think about how is Treasury SBA really going to get the money down, it's really through the, the yeah. forgiveness. On the Main Street side, these loans are not forgiven or not forgivable. They're not government guaranteed. And while PPP, the decisioning was being made by the SBA, in this case, banks, and because it's the Federal Reserve, they're only really allowed to do this through banks because Federal Reserve being one of the regulators of that sector, so not credit unions, not non-traditional lenders like fintechs. The lender will actually be making the underwriting decision. So if you think of that, lenders taking on credit risk, which they weren't under PPP, which will provide some complexities because this won't look and feel necessarily the same even if you go from lender to lender. Lenders may be having different credit policies, making different lending decisions. And also, and I mentioned with the terms, these terms are definitely probably looking a little bit more in some cases like a traditional loan that you'd see. So these are probably, as I put, these are not quite as advantageous to the borrower as, for lack of a better phrase, necessarily cheap money as a lot of people looked at PPP. So from a high level, that's really the, the overview and the differences we're seeing between the two. Yeah, and I think if you're in the borrower's shoes, I mean, the obvious biggest difference is PPP, if you qualify, like you said, it turns into a grant. I mean, it was really a true stimulus transfer of money to companies who are willing to restore their payrolls to, you know, where they were in 2019. It was what the 
policy was guiding people towards, whereas the Main Street Lending Program is really, like you said, I view it more as like a new secondary market for lenders. Like it's, it's not unusual that some banks originate loans with the intention of selling them off. You know, that's part of their business model and as loans get bigger, especially um, sometimes they simply can't keep it all on their balance sheet. They either have to syndicate it amongst other lenders or they plan to sell it off to investors so they can open up their balance sheet to make additional loans. So in a, in a market where, you know, the concern is that those investors are drying up or that the banks are just concerned about the credit risk and the, the credit worthiness of borrowers now, where they're just very, uh, very much uncertain about the ability to repay loans, this seems like the Federal Reserve stepping in as an investor willing to take these loans on, give the banks an assurance that they've got an investor willing to take the loan off their books or at least invest alongside them in order to keep the liquidity flowing. But at the end of the day, it's definitely not a forgivable loan. But, but certainly, you know, when compared to the option of no credit, it's a far better option if you're a borrower looking for liquidity. Maybe we'll take that opportunity then to talk a little bit about what to expect if you are going to participate in this program as a borrower. I mean, if you're looking at your options in the market, and Ryan, this is where I would maybe ask you to help us understand a little bit more. So I'm a company now, I'm looking at my options in the market. I've decided to make sense for me to go out and get a loan. You know, I had my expectations maybe from the last few years of dealing with my bank and what a line of credit or a term loan might look like based on my credit worthiness and where the market is in terms of interest rates and other terms. But now suddenly I go out, I apply, and I'm being told there's just no appetite to extend any credit. So what does the Main Street Lending Program say are terms to be expected if you can qualify for a loan under their program? Yeah, thanks, Andy. So what we've seen released by the Fed in this latest round is there's three types of loans that are out there as part of the program. There is new loan, priority loan, and expanded loan. And the terms for each of those loans, there's some nuance, but there are some things that cut across. So the rate for the loan will actually be LIBOR, either the one or three months, plus 300 basis points. And that's across each of the three types of loans. Each of them is also a four-year maturity with principal and interest payments being deferred for the first year. And then in all of the cases, you can prepay without penalty. Now, as far as you get to how much you can borrow in each of the loans, that actually is dependent on the type of loan that it is, whether it's the new priority or expanded. So speaking specifically about the new loan, that is a minimum loan of 500000 with a maximum being the lesser of $25 million or 4x EBITDA less current debt. So as an example there of, of how to think about that, you know, if you take your 2019 EBITDA, that gets multiplied by four, and then you would have to subtract from that your current debt and compare that against 25 million. And that would be serving in this case as the maximum amount that you could borrow. The key here with the new loan, it cannot be contractually subordinated in terms of debt. So new for anything new that you bring on. Yep. The other piece of this is the amortization piece, which for the new loan, the terms there are 33% for the second, third, and fourth years, which is a little bit different. And we'll contrast that with the priority and expanded loan. So the priority loan, and, and I'll just kind of run through all the technical details here. The priority is the same minimum of 500000 with a maximum instead being the lesser of $25 million or 6x EBITDA, less your current outstanding debt. So you have the ability potentially there as a same size business to borrow a little bit more the other thing here, though, is that that priority loan becomes senior to or at least equal to any other debt obligations. 
So it does become truly a priority loan in terms of how you think about it related to other debt obligations that you may have in place. And then it's got a little bit of a different amortization schedule with 15% the second and third year, and then a balloon payment of 70% in that fourth year when it comes to maturity. And then finally, you have the expanded loan, which is a little bit different. In this case, you would actually be expanding on a current loan that you have with a lender. And then that had to be in place as of April 24th with a remaining maturity of at least 18 months. The amortization is the 15% second year, 15% third year, 70% in the fourth year, similar to the priority loan. The difference here is in the loan size, where that minimum loan size on the expanded loan program is actually $10 million. And then the maximum loan size is lesser of $200 million, 6x EBITDA, less your current outstanding amount, or 35% of what you already have outstanding. So certainly a much different program there when you think about the expanded loan relative to the new loan or priority loan, but three different options that still exist as part of this overall program. The other note here related to the terms is the origination and transaction fees. The new loan and priority loan have 100 basis points origination fee and the expanded loan 75 basis points. The transaction fee is 100 basis points that can be passed through. It's supposed to be paid by the lender, but it can be passed through to the borrower. And then again, 75 points. So you could be looking at in order to get this loan, 200 basis points if you're getting a new loan program. Right. I was just going to say, so those terms, you know, at four times EBITDA, I would say, Oh, that sounds maybe market, certainly not like a, a back-end loaded and deferred repayment terms, like that's fairly borrower-friendly. But as you get into that party loan, expanded loan, I mean, reaching up to six times EBITDA, from my experience at least, that gets very aggressive from a borrower standpoint. And, you know, maybe if you have seniority and asset coverage or just a very well-established, predictable cash flow, you know, that might be within reach. But from my experience, I mean, that almost always took some kind of private equity co-sponsor or, you know, a very strong, well-capitalized business that the lender was very confident in to reach that level of leverage. And, you know, with rates being pushed down the way they are, you know, LIBOR plus 300, not a bad set of terms. So I would think as customers, as borrowers look out in the market, that their debt options, I think they would arrive at the conclusion that that's fairly favorable. And, you know, while maybe at the peak of the demand of the market, they could have gotten some covenant light loans with more aggressive terms. Certainly, I would think for the you know foreseeable future, those are going to be some of the best loan terms out there if you're going to access the lending market. And certainly with those delayed repayment terms, you know, it seems like they're trying to give you access to your capital and not train it immediately to start doing, you know, interest or principal repayments so that you can use it towards your business and hopefully, you know, get it through a trough of, you know, slow performance, you know, revenue decline, et cetera, until things settle down and financials start to pick back up. So I was going to say, like, from your experience, as guys look at, you know, ways to fund the business, I mean, as you reflect on that, do you believe that's ultimately going to drive people, you know, to be very interested and kind of track their lenders down to see if they can get a loan under this program? Or do you think they're going to have to continue to tweak these terms to make them attractive in the market? I think that's a very good question. I mean, to me, as I look at the terms alone, I mean, it's better than a lot of what I've seen in the market, especially when you're talking about the significant amount of capital that you alluded to on the 4 or 6x EBITDA. You know, it's not certainly as a substitute or a subsidy, essentially, when you think of the PPP comparison there of the grant or forgiveness component. But at the same time, this does allow you access to capital and in very, you know, reasonably attractive terms. And with the one year deferment, 
you know, this is a great option for capital. And, you know, one of the things that I kind of look at and we can talk a little bit more about is this is not nearly as strict or narrow as the PPP was in terms of how you can use the capital. So one of the distinctions there with the priority loan, for instance, is that you're actually able to use that loan to refinance debt, not with the lender that you get the loan from, but with other lenders, which is you know very different in the way we think about how I may be able to use this, if I can actually take the loan, refinance the debt that I have, and with a deferment option that exists, or with a deferment option that exists there, you know, I'm greatly improving my cash position, even if it's not the most attractive of terms in LIBOR plus 300, right? Right, right. And Josh, I'm interested in your take on this too. I mean, anytime the government steps into a market, I think some folks get concerned about the crowding out effect, right? So if this set of loan terms suddenly becomes available and I have the option to refinance my existing loans, do you get the sense that this will start putting pressure on the banks to either, you know, meet or beat? these types of terms, if they're going to extend new credit or, or come to an existing borrower with a proposal to modify their existing loans? Or do you feel like the banks are pretty comfortable where they are and these programs won't really be as competitive as I might be concerned about? Yeah, I think from a bank's perspective, they're still waiting on some of the guidance. And I think where you're going to have a little bit different players involved, whereas I think 95% of the banks in the country or involved in PPP, I think there's going to be a little less involvement here just due to the fact that not all banks are necessarily serving the middle market. I think it depends, and I'll say it's yet to be seen. I think you do have to, and one of the nuances of this is because you're going through the process of applying for it, you have to be able to identify if you had adequate credit opportunities elsewhere that were not under this program. What I envision will happen is and this was at least just my opinion, I think banks, the larger players in the middle market and above, will be involved with this program. I'm almost anticipating that these will be a product offering, is maybe one way to put it, because ultimately, if the intent of this is to keep credit flowing for those that can't obtain credit, I think there will be some borrowers out there that will have the opportunity to have, for lack of a better phrase, access to non-federally subsidized products and thus maybe have different rates that may be more attractive than this. While others, I think this will be a way to continue to help support their customers that may not be due to certain facts and circumstances eligible to that. So I'm not sure it's going to be a race to the bottom on terms, but at the same time from what, what I've saw with PPP, if you weren't able to execute to help your client in a time where they had, as some would say, some your, helping some of your clients in a time of their greatest need, that definitely, let me put it this way, I know quite a number of people that ended up switching banks through the PPP program because they did not feel supported. So I look at it, the banks yeah. are going to use this as an offering, but they're going to have to understand how can I best utilize this to help support my customer if this is their best and only option out there. Well, one of the main advantages I see is that lenders will not be forced to use the e-trans system to complete one of these <laughs> loans. And I think that might make it 10 times better right out of the gate. Yeah. So I think, I think that's a good point here is that while there is a similarity in that it's being implemented through banks, I mean, it's much more of a bank-driven underwriting, generate a loan. You know, obviously the terms slow down from this, you know, government investor effectively in the Federal Reserve. 
but ultimately it's going to be a, a loan in force and it's going to, you know, conform to those terms that, like you said, much like a loan under any program would. Here's a good follow-up question. So let's say I'm listening to this and I'm CEO, I'm a CFO, I'm an investor, and I think, boy, that, those loan terms sound pretty favorable. I'd love to access that program when my bank rolls it out. Can any type of company access it or what should people think about if they're trying to determine if they're actually eligible to access one of these loans? Yeah, so the we have gotten guidance on around eligibility. And so this is intended for mid-sized businesses. So businesses up to 15,000 employees or less than $5 billion in 2019 revenues. The other piece of this is SBA affiliation rules apply to that. So specifically, you know, private equity firms, you're kind of looking, or portfolio companies of private equity firms, you're looking at any sort of ownership affiliations would come into play when you start to get into that employee count or revenues. You know, it is targeting U.S. businesses, so you have to be created or organized in the U.S. with significant operations and employees in the U.S. The one thing here is you can actually still go after this if you did get PPP funding. So worth noting there of it does not exclude you if you've already gotten funding through PPP. You can't have gotten funding from the CARES Act, but I would imagine that's applying to very few people. That's specifically the section where you gave air carrier or airlines, cargo carriers, national security. So probably not a concern for most companies listening in. And then the other piece of this is, you know, as you think about eligibility, it's interesting of you have to, and relates to the conversation we were just having, you have to certify that you think that you will be in business and able to pay this back for at least 90 days and the bank will have a responsibility to check on some sort of, you know, expectation that you won't go bankrupt. I was going to say that's a remarkable thing to have to insert into a qualifier. I hope every bank has that rule before they extend credit. But yeah, if I yeah, could say, you know, while we talk about it being last resort, it's definitely not meant for companies that are, you know, approaching a restructuring or a bankruptcy event for sure. Yep. And then the other thing is you actually, if you had a loan in place as of December 31st, 2019, that loan has to have had a rating of pass in the FFIEC supervisory rating system. So there is some sort of, you had to have been in good standing coming into the pandemic. And this is really a program that kind of gets back to the overall philosophy of this is intending to help those companies that were in good standing prior to the pandemic kind of keep operations going, right? That's a good point. So that's a good summary of who under the current policy can qualify. Now let's talk about what do you plan to do with the money, like the use of proceeds analysis. So we oftentimes when people come to us looking to raise capital, you know, we walk them through the pros and cons of, you know, equity versus debt. And we oftentimes try to have a pretty detailed conversation about what, what exactly do you want to use the proceeds for? And, you know, sometimes that really helps drive the decision on whether you should go with kind of the flexibility of equity, accept some dilution, but have a more flexible financial partner or go down the road with a debt provider who's going to come with terms and conditions and covenants and repayment plan, but obviously has the upside of letting you retain your ownership without dilution and, and control of your business. So in this case, you know, probably most noteworthy, there are definitely some very specific guidance on how the money can be used and certainly opens up the philosophical question of, you know, money is fungible. How exactly are you tracing the use of proceeds here? But getting past that, why don't we have a little bit of a chat and help people understand what, you know, the ins and outs, the do's and don'ts in terms of plans for the proceeds of one of these loans? Yeah, I kind of start with going back to the original intent of the program, first and foremost listed is that the borrower should make commercially reasonable efforts to maintain its payroll and retain its employees while the loan is outstanding. You're not excluded if prior to getting the loan, you have already furloughed or laid off employees, but that is listed as an expectation. And then despite that you can, with the priority loan, refinance existing debt, what this does, you know, any loan that you get 
You aren't allowed to repay other debts except for those that are due during this time. So or due during the time. So you can't just sit there and pay off other debts before you get this one. And then you, know, you can't go back and cancel or reduce any committed lines of credit with lenders. Yeah. And then the other piece here that's a little interesting. Oh, go ahead. I was just starting to interrupt, but it seems like that's a little bit of a nod towards the concern about crowding out lenders, right? The one hand, Federal Reserve wants to help the market and keep credit flowing. But on the other hand, they don't want to be causing loans to get paid back prematurely or somehow squeezing out existing loans that are a source of revenue for lenders that they rely on as they forecast their own financial health. But uh, sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No, no, I think that's a, that's a great point. The other piece here that I would comment on that is specific to this program is that you are subject to compensation, stock repurchase, and capital distribution restrictions that are laid out in the CARES Act. And so specifically, those are no repurchasing of equity securities, no dividends or capital distributions, and then no employee or officer that earned more than $425,000 in compensation in 2019 can earn more than they earned in 2019 for the term of the loan plus 12 months. And that applies to the same dividend and equity securities as well. So there are some stipulations with taking the credit facility here um, that are worth noting, you know, particularly as, as you think about it as a CEO or an officer of your company. Yeah. And that's especially the fact that the obligation extends 12 months after the loan's been repaid. I can think of it as a trailing obligation after the lenders, you know, finish the financial relationship, they still have the right to come in and audit these requirements. Yeah, it's interesting to to say the least. So let's say I come to terms with all of that. It, it makes sense. I wasn't planning on doing any of those items that are prohibited, or I can live with those restrictions to get access to this capital. I've watched people go through the TTP program. Boy, if there's one thing I've learned, you need to be prepared. Probably not great to be in the middle or the back of that line. So I'd like to start pulling some things together now. What do you suggest people do that are thinking about accessing this program so they can be better prepared once it rolled out and implemented in the market? Ryan, I'll start off. I think the two pieces of advice I'd probably have on this is one is kind of alluded to as the banks are going to be underwriting this, there may be different qualifications and there may be different requirements. If you're at bank A may require a different underwriting and different documentation and different support than bank B. And because of the nature of it, they will either be making these loans under the bank's current credit policy or updated credit policy. So I think I'd look through that lens of you need to start the conversation with your bank sooner rather than later. But also one thing I've learned from PPP, it's never bad to start a conversation with more than one bank. I know quite a few that maybe were in a situation that they relied on and said, hey, my banking relationship is with this bank. And for whatever reason, they were not funded for their loans quite as quickly, or maybe they even were pushed into round two, or other banks had better processes to get these turned out. So I would say talk to your bank, your lending relationship, but also have some in your back pocket that you're maybe having some dialogue with. And then also if, if we've seen anything and I'm expecting this from PPP, really for those that haven't been that involved in PPP, for the most part, we're still waiting on a significant amount of guidance on the actual forgiveness piece of this loan. I think there's going to be a large whether you want to call it audit or regulatory, look at the actual forgiveness and the documentation behind it. I would view this as somewhat of a similar risk that if the Federal Reserve is coming in and being a part of this lending relationship, they're probably going to want to potentially for some borrowers see some type of audit trail, at least in my mind, related to, at least from the beginning of it, 
did you have a process to segregate these funds if they came in the door? And then how did you use those funds? I think the more that you're able to provide support for that, it's going to be easier. And who knows, this may not come about, but if I've learned anything from PPP, there's obviously headline risk involved, especially if it does not match necessarily the intent of what the government was trying to do there. So start the conversation with your bankers early, but also look at what type of process for segregating these funds and tracking their use. Yeah, that's good advice. And also, I think you're right. One of the lessons learned from PPP is, you know, what you read and think that you understand and know going into a program can change. And, you know, with this program, there's a little bit more lead time and definitely would encourage people to consult with a trusted advisor or someone who has looked at this program pretty closely and across multiple company clients, as well as from a lender's perspective, and can bring all of that market knowledge to bear. Because for sure, your mileage can vary. And like you're saying, if there's one thing constant here, it's change. And rather than a company trying to stay on top of all the various publications, updates, and announcements, far better to have uh, a team of advisors in place who can help filter all that and and make sure they're thinking through and trying to stay ahead of the likely next steps uh, before they become a challenge. And also to identify an opportunity. Like I have to say, I think a lot of people were surprised that the PPP program rolled out, that they qualified, and they were, you know, excited to hear that it took someone sometimes to reach out and let them know that there was a program available to them, but, but initially they didn't think it would work for their situation. So I want to shift gears a little bit. You know, there's a lot of focus on this program to fund operating needs, and I think that's appropriate, and that's definitely a use of proceeds that's very important to keep the lights on and fuel recovery. But there are also situations that especially we would encounter that are really more tied to mergers and acquisitions or investor participation in a business. So, you know, for a lot of our clients, they either already have a private equity investor or they aspire to have one invest in their business. And I wonder, Ryan, what's your take on, you know, what should a private equity group think about in terms of accessing this program? Are they specifically barred from it? Should they consider using it when they're trying to model out? what the balance sheet would look like after they're invested or even for an existing portfolio company, if it makes sense for them to reach out to the lender to see if they should participate in one of these loan programs. Yeah. So I'd I'd start by saying, I think this is something that if I were a private equity investor, it would be top of the list of things that I would be looking at right now. There are, as I mentioned, the affiliation rules that still exist. So, you know, that's dependent on the, the size of the private equity firm that you are or the investment group and then the portfolio companies that you have. But in general, the way that you you would think about this is I kind of look at, you know, a typical, I actually have outstanding or something sitting out there that tells me here's the terms of what access to capital looks like sitting in front of me. So I start with, well, what is my cash position? And how do I look at whether it's a overall business or portfolio company? You know, what would this cash actually get me? And am I willing to, you know, essentially pay for that access to capital in order to, be able to do the things that I want to do. So it's different for me than the PPP program where, you know, that was one where it was all about the actual formulaic calculation of I can get X amount in terms of reimbursement. And essentially, I think of it as a grant. And so obviously, I'm going to apply. This is more of a traditional sense of, in this case, I know the credit term sitting in front of me. What am I going to do with this capital? And how do I think about it? Because it's not simply the, oh, because I can go get 4X in EBITDA, well, if I'm, you know, if I don't have things that I'm actually going to do with that and I'm going to use less than that, or if I'm smaller or something, 
then you go, well, from there, what am I really doing? Am I just paying for capital because it's simply available? That doesn't make too much logical sense to me. So I think it all comes down to what do you want to do? So Josh, let me ask you this question. Could a company use this loan program to fund an acquisition of another company? Maybe the best way I'd say it because guidance is still forthcoming. I'm not saying they can't, but I'm not saying they can't. (laughs) Um, The way I'm thinking of it, and I think they're viewing it through the lens of, through the kind of last resort, lender of last resort mentality to provide some economic stability. I think there could be, I'm hoping there's some additional guidance in there to flush this out a little bit more because I mean, I think all, all acquisitions vary. I mean, if you think of, getting back to the original intent or some of the verbiage that came out about operations, keeping people employed. Hey, if I'm a borrower, I may have an opportunity to buy what one could consider to be a failing business that I have a legitimate business plan for, and I've got the horsepower to turn it around. Can I use these funds to acquire that business? Hey, I'm keeping people employed. I'm keeping this thing operating. I don't know. I mean, what I would say is there's still a lot of guidance that we're hoping is forthcoming. If I've learned anything from PPP, sometimes that guidance comes out after the loans are already made. But I would recommend definitely consulting not only your banker, but attorneys, those advisors on the capital markets, accountants, other consultants on that. But at this point, there's there's still definitely some gray area around that, at least from our interpretation. Gotcha. It's good feedback and definitely something we would pay close attention to because I, I also agree that there's a, no doubt that in this market, there will be a number of companies seeking a sale, some through you know a process where they have you know control and they're not, while it'd be nice, it's not imminent that they need to get a transaction done. Others are doing it in lieu of bankruptcy or might even be uh, distressed asset sales. You know, there are definitely ways to buy a company through an asset purchase. You don't necessarily always have to buy the stock of a company to execute a transaction, depending on the particular situation. So we're coming close to the end of the time here. So maybe we'll use the last five minutes here just to talk about what do you guys predict will be next for this? You know, as, as people are looking, trying to make plans for the future of their company, you know, what do you guys foresee happening between now and, and when this program rolls out? And, you know, and I'll, I'll maybe put someone on the spot here and see if someone's willing to actually predict the date that uh, you know, a, a bank would roll this program out and actually make the loan program available to borrowers at large. What should people expect here in the coming days and weeks from this main street lending program? Ryan, I'll throw out a potential date, but I'll say it is a definitely a guesstimate at this point. I've been on a number of kind of larger conference calls with senators and other high-ranking people within the government in various sectors. I heard two weeks ago that the expectation would be sometime around the beginning of May, and it's May 5th, and we are still waiting on something. And if anything, if I've learned anything, the terms really changed last week from the initial terms. My guess is that the terms you're seeing now are probably pretty close to final, but I still think we could see some additional tweaks and some additional guidance that will be forthcoming. I mean, my gut would tell me we're probably looking at sometime around mid-month, but that it's really up in the air at this point. That is lightning fast for a government program, but I understand <laughs> your point. But I think the distance between idea and execution, you know, always gets longer as these things, especially as they, you know, trickle down. And then especially if people want to make course corrections along the way, it's very hard to imagine uh, change introduces a delay in implementation 
And, you know, when you're a bank, you, you really can only issue the loan once. You don't get a chance to recall it and then issue it again under different terms when you realize something should have been different. So I would think that's a, a reasonable expectation. That's good. And then, Ryan, any predictions here or final words of advice for folks that are interested in learning more about this? The only thing that I would add to Josh's comment there, I think, you know, you're still up in the air on exactly when this program is rolled out. And to that point, I would say, look, I mean, use the resources that are available to you, whether it be your attorneys, your accountants, consultants, just general advisors. There's going to be things that still need to be cleared up as it relates to this program. And then there will be things that come out in the next couple of weeks and, you know, that we still expect to see. So as Josh mentioned earlier, I would go ahead and start conversations with not one, but multiple banks about the program. I would start, you know, understanding how I would use the money if I were sitting here, you know, looking at the program. And then from there, you know, I think it's keep the latest information or keep up to speed as best you can and, and go from there. Yeah, Ryan, having a plan and being able to pivot, I think, given the way these programs are rolled out, I think that that's very good insight to have a plan and be able to pivot as guidance comes out. Waiting will only get you to the back of the line. Yep. Yeah. Right. I predict this won't be the last time we talk about this. So thank you, Ryan and Josh, both for your time and insight here. We'll post some information on the show notes here for those of you that are looking at the podcast online. Ellie Davis posts some great material and, and well, I'm sure have some future information to share. And then obviously the best thing you can do is pick up the phone, get in touch with us. I think we'd love to talk about your particular situation and whether or not this opportunity could make sense for you. And if so, how to best take advantage of it so that you don't let this pass you by and the policy can have its intended effect of putting more liquidity out in the market, supporting strong businesses, and ultimately helping to speed up this economic recovery as best we can. And thanks again, Ryan and Josh, for your time. Thank you, Andy. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Deal Talk with 7MA. You'll find more information and resources based on today's discussion exclusively on our website. If you're looking to dive deeper into today's topics, head to 7mileadvisors.com to speak to one of our bankers today. That's the number 7, M-I-L-E-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S.com. 7M Securities does not make any investment recommendation for any company or security that was discussed, nor does the firm offer any tax advice. Consult your tax advisor for any tax matter that might apply to you or your business. 